let me just say while you turn there, um, whenever I was preparing this sermon series, I didn't do it the week before. This has been prepared, well, not the messages, but what the topic was going to be has been prepared since uh, before Christmas. And how relevant it is, given the events this week on uh, a global stage and personal events in my life and maybe potentially your life, that today we come to the sovereignty of God. Again, this isn't me just responding to events. God has set the agenda well in advance. He has directed events so that now, after the week that we have all had, both globally and personally, we get a focus upon him high and lifted up. We're going to read in just a moment from Daniel 4, beginning at verse 29, but we are jumping right into the middle of the chapter, so let me bring you up to speed with what has happened. Chapter 4 of Daniel records a second dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. It was a dream about a great and fruitful tree that was then chopped down, and Daniel comes and interprets this dream and tells the king that the tree, in fact, represents him. He had grown great, and Babylon, his kingdom, had reached and spread to the ends of the earth. The angel that had commanded the tree to be chopped down in his dream, well, that represented God's decree that the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, would be humbled like a beast. And we begin our reading then at verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he, King Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof, of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from one generation to another. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Let us pray again. Father, we come today... To you, the Most High, the King of Heaven. And Father, we are going to consider things potentially that are new, things that may change our thoughts, 
But Lord, we pray that we would think biblical thoughts about you. So Father, we pray that your spirit would empty any, any preconceived ideas that we may have and ask that your word by your spirit would speak to us, inform our minds about you, the most high, and then produce life transformation for your glory. Amen. Amen. Martin Luther, the great reformer, great German reformer, once said to Erasmus, your thoughts about God are all too human. Your thoughts about God are all too human. Can I ask you today, are your thoughts about God all too human? Are your beliefs about God and about who he is and what he has done, his work and his ways, more formed by human reasoning, human tradition, and human experience than looking at God's word, the Bible? Now, you may reject and say, hey, Alex, that's not true. That is not true. Of course not. But your actions speak louder than your words. You may say that God is great, but does your life match and profess that truth? If someone watched your life closely, would they be able to conclude that you believe in a great and awesome God? Or would they perhaps conclude that your God is all too small and all too human? If they heard you talk maybe here with stories of grace about your salvation, would they hear more about you or would they hear more about God? If a time of personal suffering came upon you and someone journeyed with you or even unrest in in culture and in society, would they know that you believe in an all-powerful God who controls and runs the universe however he seems fit? Are your thoughts about God all too human? And in this sermon series, uh, we have been studying biblical information and praying that the Holy Spirit would lead us and produce life transformation. And our overall question has been this, who is God? Already we've noticed three answers. God is incomparable, God is unchangeable, and God is holy, holy, holy. And today we come to a fourth answer, a fourth truth. It's, a, it's, it's an awesome truth. It's a biblical truth that God is sovereign. I believe that the sovereignty of God is the most humbling and mind-expanding attribute of God that there is. The one attribute that can single-handedly change our human thoughts about God to biblical God thoughts about God. Everything within us cries out that we are sovereign, that we are the masters of our fate, and that we are the captains of our soul. Yet the Bible informs us that God is sovereign and that he is in control of all things, both the macro and the micro, the big and the small. Well, what does the word sovereign mean? Well, for some of us, it's really a foreign term. We have no idea. We've never heard it used. But for others, myself included, we are quite familiar with it because we come from countries where a monarchy exists. The sovereign is the queen or king. It's the absolute ruler. So when we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he is the absolute ruler. He is the creator and sustainer. He is the maker and the master. He is the king. He is the Lord. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. I've defined God's sovereignty. It should be on the board behind me like this. 
God's sovereignty is his absolute right to exercise his kingly power in whatever way he seems fit to bring about his eternal purposes. God's sovereignty is his absolute right to exercise his kingly power in whatever way he seems fit to bring about his eternal purposes. His right was not earned. It wasn't given to him. It's God's because he is the supreme king of the universe. His purposes were made before the foundation of the world and they were, they were achieved throughout history by his providential guiding of all events. And as has been our pattern over uh, the last couple of weeks, we want to ask three questions to better understand God's sovereignty. Three questions to dig deeper into this massive, humbling, mind-expanding attribute. Question one, you should be able to repeat it with me. Is God sovereign? Is God sovereign? Well, if you went home today or even right now, you typed into an English Bible the word sovereign or sovereignty, you'll be quite surprised because it only appears in the English Standard Version, for example, three times. And yet this word search is quite misleading because the concept is found in every book of the Bible. For example, when the Bible describes the throne of God, it declares that God is sovereign. When the Bible describes God acting within his creation, it is declaring that God is sovereign. Or when the Bible uses titles like King or Most High, titles that we've even been singing about today, it announces that God is sovereign. And throughout this series, we've considered each attribute through one specific passage. And when thinking about God's sovereignty, there's no better book to focus on than the book of Daniel. God's sovereignty is the central theme of Daniel. Chapters 1 to 6 of Daniel uh, record narratives which describe that God is sovereign over events in Babylon. We all have maybe grown up with the stories of the lion's den, Daniel and the lion's den, Daniel and Daniel and his three friends in the fiery furnace. And yet all the time we are told that it's God who gave Judah into the hands of Babylon. It's God who delivered Daniel and his friends from the fiery furnace. It's God who, 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 who delivered and rescued him from the lion's mouth. And it's God who humbles the kings. It's God who is sovereign over the events. And then we go into chapters 7 and 12, and that's where preachers often stop because it's Daniel's night visions, wacky beasts and, 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 and people coming out of the earth, and no one understands what's going on. And yet there's one central theme in chapters 7 to 12 of these visions, that God is sovereign, that the Ancient of Days, God the Father, is in control of all things and has given all authority to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. So God's sovereignty is on display throughout the entire book of Daniel. And this is especially true when we consider King Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation in chapter 4. Look at what the great king of Babylon said in verse 34 of our passage. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the most high. Who's that? It's God, the supreme king of heaven, as verse 37 later on shows. What will we conclude today, let's say if we go home this afternoon and our, our, our phones started to buzz 
Um, and it says that President Biden or King Charles had bowed down and worshipped someone. What would our immediate conclusion be about that? Well, we would conclude that that person is greater than the king or the president. Because the president or the king or whatever your governor is, they don't bow to anyone. People bow to them because they are the greatest. And here in chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest ruler at that time. His dominion, that is his authority, had spread to the ends of the earth. And his, 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 his kingdom was massive. It stretched from the Persian Gulf in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, from, uh, from, from Egypt in the north down, down to Iran in the south. But look at what King Nebuchadnezzar says in the rest of verse 34. I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Do you see what's happening here? King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king at that time, maybe one of the greatest kings that have ever existed, bows before and worships the eternal God. He acknowledges that from the east to the west, from the beginning to the end, the almighty, the most high, the king of heaven reigns. Look at what he says in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. In other words, in light of God's greatness, everyone else is small and insignificant. He continues in verse 35. God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That phrase, he, he does whatever he wills, does whatever he pleases, it's found in two psalms. <laughs> two psalms, not, not psalm, two psalms. Psalm 115 verse 3, which says on the board behind me, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. And then again, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Do you see what we're learning? The absolute ruler, the sovereign, supreme king, does as he wants, where he wants, when he wants, and with whoever he wants. Since God has all power... He's omnipotent, we would say, has all power. And since God is all wise, he knows what best to do with all that power. He does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign. No one can stop God exercising his power to accomplish his purposes in history. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar finishes in verse 35. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, no one can stop God. And no one can question his ways. Why? Because King Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely convinced that God, the Most High, is sovereign. The book of Daniel is absolutely certain that God is sovereign. The Bible is absolutely clear that God is sovereign. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God exercises his kingly power in whatever way he seems fit to bring about his eternal purposes? So question one, is God sovereign? 100% he is. 
Question number two, and I've changed it slightly from our previous weeks just to fit the topic. Over what areas is God sovereign? Over what areas is God sovereign? Now, you may agree that the Bible uh, says that God is in the heavens and even that he does whatever he pleases. But do we also have biblical thoughts about the extent of God's sovereignty, about the reach of God's sovereignty, the scope of sovereignty? Look at the middle of verse 35 of Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar says, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, God is sovereign over everything. Everything means everything. He is sovereign over everything on heaven and on earth, in the sea and the deeps, the big and the small, the good and the bad. God is sovereign over it all. Former Prime Minister of Holland, Abraham Kuyper, once said, it's on the screen behind me, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. In other words, everything means everything. Nothing is outside of his control. And to illustrate this, I want to consider three areas over which God is sovereign. Now, of course, there are, there are many different areas across Scripture. But in this passage, in Daniel 4, I believe we see three specific areas of God's sovereignty. Area number one, God is sovereign over societies. God is sovereign over societies. What's more encouraging for the persecuted church today to hear? That their persecutors are in control or that God is in control. What's more encouraging to hear for marginalized Christians today, that lawmakers and governments are in control, or that God is in control? Of course, it's the second, isn't it? That God is in control. It doesn't give clarity about why they are being persecuted or marginalized, but it provides confidence that God has permitted it for his purposes. And that's the central truth, uh, truth that Daniel chapter 4 is communicating to the exiles in Babylon. That God, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Babylon, but God is in control. That the times are in his hands. Three times we are told that God is sovereign over kings, nations, and societies. Look back in uh, just one page to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, just listen. Right at the end of Daniel 4, 17, we read, To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Look at the end of verse 25 of Daniel 4. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Again, look at the end of verse 32, which we have read. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. It's almost word for word across the chapter. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. Three times we are told that God is humbling this arrogant king, King Nebuchadnezzar, so that everyone, King Neb. In, in, in particular, will know 
that God alone rules. It's the truth that King Solomon declared many years before. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He doesn't force the water. It's easy. He turns the water wherever he will. One of my favorite songs at the moment is called Ancient of Days. And it begins with this truth. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. Friends, God is sovereign over societies. Kings, nations, lawmakers, governments, whatever happens in society, God is on the throne. Scope area number two. God is sovereign over suffering. Although we didn't read the whole chapter, verse 33 summarizes what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Read it with me. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. Nebuchadnezzar suffered from a mental disorder, a psychological illness known as lycanthropy. It's basically where a person believes that they are an animal and that they act like one. And it's, it's not uncommon today. There are people who, who suffer from this mental illness. There's a woman a couple of years ago believes and identifies as a cat. So she, 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 she acts like a cat. She wants everyone to address her as a cat. And yet, what does our world do? It bows to her. Yes, you're a cat. No, it's a mental disorder. It's a psychological illness. The cane went mad. The cane went insane. But notice again what verse 33 says. Immediately, the word was fulfilled. Whose word? God's. The start of the chapter tells us how God announced through a dream and then through Daniel and finally through his own voice three times that the king would suffer this illness for a set amount of time. The illness wasn't by chance, but it was brought by God for a purpose, in this specific case, to humble the king. God was sovereign over King Nebuchadnezzar's suffering. I'm sure we've all heard the story of Daniel in the fiery furnace. When Daniel and his three friends were there, the furnace was heated seven times, the normal heat. They were standing there about to be thrown in, and they were given one last chance to bow and worship the king. What did they do? Well, listen to the words of uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 to 18. They said to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So Daniel and his three friends knew that God was able to deliver them. It wasn't a question of God's power. They knew that God was able to deliver them from this fiery furnace. But they also trusted that if God didn't deliver them, he knew exactly what he was doing. 
Do you see that? They knew that God had all power to do whatever was going to happen, and yet they trusted God if you deliver us, and if not, you are still God. They believed that God was sovereign over their suffering. Do you remember the story of Job? God gave Satan permission to test Job, so 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 Job went to uh, so Satan went to Job and took all his property and telling children. And although Satan was the cause of suffering, the text of Job chapter one uh, makes it clear, and Job himself knew that God was ultimately in control. How can I say that? Not because these are my human thoughts, but it's God's word, because Job tells us in Job one twenty one. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Surely Job sinned by declaring God sovereign over suffering. He's, he's actually sinning in this passage, isn't he, Alex? Well, what did verse 22 of Job 1 say? The next verse of Job 1. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan only took from Job what God allowed him to take. Nothing less and nothing more. Why? Because God was sovereign over Job's suffering. Does this mean, Alex, that God sins? No, it doesn't. Although God is absolutely sovereign over sin and permits and controls it for his purposes, he himself never sins. Do I understand this? No. Do I believe it? Yes. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Friends, these aren't, these aren't Alex's thoughts. These aren't Sam's thoughts. These aren't human thoughts about God. They're biblical thoughts about God, allowing God to speak about God. If I wasn't convinced about the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, I would never stand up here and say this right now. And yet I preach it, and Sam preaches it, because we allow God to speak through his word. Job. And Joseph, and John, and Jesus, and Daniel, and King Nebuchadnezzar. All stories of God's sovereignty over suffering. But in your suffering, remember ultimately Jesus. Jesus who suffered greatly because of God's sovereign plan to save all those who would trust him. The Apostle Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who crucified Jesus? Sinful men. Who planned and permitted the crucifixion? A holy God. Why? For his eternal purposes. In this position, to bring about the salvation of Jesus' people from every tribe, tongue, a nation. I don't know why God has allowed suffering in your life. I don't know it. I'm not going to ever come to you and say, maybe this is why, or this is why. I don't know. 
You may never know, but God's word is certain that he is sovereign over your suffering and knows exactly what you're doing, whether we see it or whether we don't. So will you trust him today? Will you trust the absolute ruler? Trust in his kingly power that is used to bring about his eternal purposes, which we'll see later on for his glory and for your good in Christ Jesus. So God is sovereign over societies. God is sovereign over suffering. And thirdly, in this passage, God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over salvation. Here's a question to think about at the dinner time later on with your wife or your kids. Well, maybe not your kids. Will Nebuchadnezzar, will King Nebuchadnezzar be in heaven? Will we see him in heaven? It's a very interesting question to think about. Some commentators, people who write books about the Bible think, well, he won't. But others think that he will because they believe that chapter 4 of Daniel is actually King Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. And I also think that he will. Let me explain. What is salvation? Well, it's, it's a humble confession of your sin and need of a saviour. It's the humbling and breaking of your arrogant and stubborn heart. Do we see that occurring in the text? We'll have a look at verse 34. Verse 34 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven. Right at the start of the chapter, where is he lifting his eyes to? To Babylon, to his majesty, to his power, to his dominion, to his government. And now at the end of his suffering... He lifts his eyes to heaven. Right at the start of uh, the chapter, chapter 4, he includes God as, many, as, as, as one of many holy gods. He refers to Daniel with whom the spirit of the holy God is, is within him. It's impersonal. It's just a general term. God is included with other gods. And right here as we've been reading, it's a personal praise to the king of heaven. Everything acknowledges truth about God. It's personal. He is the most high. I praise and extol the king of heaven. And then at the end of verse 37, King Nebuchadnezzar tells us the lesson he learned. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. How does he know this? Because God had humbled him through his suffering. God sovereignly used his suffering to humble the king and call him to lift his eyes to heaven, to cry out to the Most High, and to be saved. God was sovereign over King Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. And if you're not a Christian today, if you're outside of Christ, an unbeliever, could your suffering be God waking you up, flipping you on your back to look up and to cry out to the King of Heaven? breaking your pride to cry out for your need of a savior. If so, don't miss the lesson. Lift your eyes to heaven. Confess your sin to almighty God and receive forgiveness from him purchased for you by the death of his son Jesus on the cross. He suffered and died and rose in your place. Believe and trust him today. 
the God was sovereign over King Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. And that's the consistent testimony of the Bible. You see, God gets all the glory for the salvation of his people, both physical and spiritual, because he alone saves them. It makes sense, doesn't it? If God is sovereign over societies, the wider sphere thing, and he is, and if God is sovereign over suffering, more personal, and he is, then surely it must be true that God is sovereign over my salvation. And he is. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6, 65. This is why I told you that no one, absolutely no one, can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. People believe in Jesus because God has chosen them before the foundation of the world. Listen to the words of Paul, uh, Luke, sorry, in Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia's dead, hard heart was opened by God. God opened her heart when and where and however he wanted. Why? Because he was sovereign over Lydia's salvation. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he is sovereign over your salvation. He is sovereign over our salvation. It was God who sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And it was God who raised Jesus from the dead for our justification. And it was God the Spirit who first opened your eyes to see your sin and need for a Savior. It was, it was God, we're told by Paul in Ephesians 2, that gave us the gift of faith to believe in and take hold, to grab Jesus as our Savior. God gets all the glory for our salvation because he alone is sovereign. I didn't choose God. God first chose me. And that's the testimony of the Bible. It's the logical, it's the natural conclusion if you're into that. But we're not into human logic. We're into biblical thoughts, thoughts about God. That God is sovereign over societies. That God is sovereign over suffering. That God is sovereign over salvation. Joseph tells us that God is sovereign over sinful circumstances. Job tells us that God is sovereign over Satan. God is sovereign over it all. Because God is God. And that brings us to our third question. How should we respond to our sovereign God? Before I give the three responses, let me, let me remind you what I've already said. The Bible is entirely sufficient to speak into our lives, no matter what situation we face. That's why Sam and I preach God's word week in and week out. You know that's what we're going to give you, God's word, because it's God's word that speaks truth to us. Truth is truth, whether you or I have experienced it or not. So how should we respond to our sovereign God? First response, be convinced. Be convinced that God is sovereign and we are not. To be convinced of something means that, means that our whole lives reflect it. Remember, actions speak louder than words. So if we're convinced that God is sovereign, our hearts will believe that God is in control even when we feel or, or, or circumstances suggest otherwise. 
If we are convinced that God is sovereign, our minds will be constantly informed by God's word, God, biblical thoughts about God. If we are convinced that God is sovereign, our mouths will confess that we are not. And like King Nebuchadnezzar, we will praise the king of heaven. If we are convinced that God is sovereign, our whole lives will reflect this truth. So we will pray earnestly to God about our unbelieving friends because we know that he alone can change the sinner's heart. When we hear devastating news from the doctor or we get that diagnosis that we didn't want, of course we will be sad. But we will also believe that God knows what he is doing. When a change takes place in society, we will resist the urge to grumble against God and instead thank him that he is still on his throne and ultimately in control. Friends, the sovereignty of God doesn't deny or suppress our feelings. Instead, it directs them to the Most High, giving us confidence and conviction that he alone is in control. So can I ask you, are you convinced in your heart, mind, mouth, life, that God is sovereign. Response number two, be comforted. Listen to this, be comforted that God's sovereignty acts along with his other attributes. We all know what happens when rulers have no accountability. Just look at Russia, for example. To us, no accountability equals havoc and destruction. But God is accountable, not to a human accountability partner, but to his own character. You see, all of God's attributes act consistently with one another. You can't separate them. God acts totally and entirely in line with his gracious, his merciful, his good, his just, his righteous, and his loving character. So there's no cause for us to be scared or alarmed or panic when we hear that God is sovereign because, he is, because his sovereign ways and works are right and just. Look at what King Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 37. I think this is just amazing. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we shouldn't complain about what we don't understand. Rather, we should be comforted that all things come not by chance, but by the Fatherly's good hand. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, it's on uh, the screen behind me, I would encourage you to make a painting of this. It's an amazing quote. When we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. When we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. You see, God doesn't allow suffering in our lives to watch us squirm. He doesn't allow suffering into our lives to, to, to laugh at us. He allows it for a good purpose, ultimately to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus. Therefore, whatever God has ordained is right. Can I encourage you then from God's word to trust his heart even when you cannot trace his hand? All his sovereign ways are right and just because his sovereignty acts along perfectly, totally, consistently with all his other attributes. Third response and final response, be encouraged. 
be encouraged that God's sovereignty is for his glory and our good. Remember what God's sovereignty means. It's his absolute right to exercise his kingly power in whatever way he seems fit to bring about his eternal purposes. His eternal purposes are for his glory and for our good as believers. How do we know this? Because God has told us it in his word. Do you remember the story of Joseph back in Genesis? How he went from being a shepherd to a slave because his brothers were jealous of him. How he went from a palace to a prison because because uh, some woman told him and, 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 and accused him of trying to sleep with her. And yet behind all the hurt and all the pain and all the sin, Joseph says in Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God, God meant it for good. And Joseph knew that God was in control of all things. Yes, it was his brothers that sinned, but ultimately God permitted the sinful circumstances for his glory and for Joseph's good. Think about Paul's statement in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul says that God causes all things to work together for the good of his people. Doesn't matter if it's sinful circumstances or societal changes. Doesn't matter if it's painful suffering or a stubborn heart. Doesn't even matter if it's, if, if it's divorce or disability or even death. God works all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him. If you're a Christian this morning, God is working and it's for his glory and your good you're not a christian you can't take that out don't put it on a cup it's not yours first come to christ confess your sin receive forgiveness and then be comforted be encouraged that god works all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him that's why spurgeon i love spurgeon if you've never heard of Spurgeon, research him. Got Lewis, my twin brother, a pair of pajamas a couple of years. With Spurgeon smoking a pipe. It was pretty cool. And Spurgeon comes off with this quote again. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the soft pillow on which the believer can lay his anxious head. Are you anxious and afraid today? We go to bed tonight encouraged that God is still on his throne working all things together for his own. I know that there's been a lot of information today, but it's been centered on one truth. God is sovereign. Societies don't reign. Suffering doesn't reign. Even sin doesn't reign. The Almighty, the Most High, the King of Heaven reigns forever. So that's why right at the end of Revelation 19 verse 5, the saints and the angels and everyone in heaven and on earth proclaim the Almighty reigns. Because God is sovereign. Brothers and sisters, be convinced, comforted and encouraged that our God is in control and he's working all things for his glory and for our good. And I also realize that Oh, a lot of this information may be new. It may be 
maybe challenging and maybe thought-provoking and has raised different questions. So I want to finish by recommending some books on the sovereignty of God. It's not a normal practice, but it's good to put good literature into your hands. If you want a general overview of the sovereignty of God, it's an old classic by a guy called A.W. Pink. A.W. Pink, The Sovereignty of God. Easy enough read. Well, English is my first language, sorry. It's, it's an easy read, so it is. It talks about different scopes. God's sovereignty over uh, nations, he calls it. Salvation, uh, Satan. Really, really good. It's 100, 150 pages. You can get it done in a month. We'll, we'll, we'll say it has. The next one is uh, J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Again, talks about God's sovereignty over salvation and also how that encourages us not to not evangelize, as some people say, but rather to get out and to pray to God and evangelize knowing that he has people who are his and it will succeed. So J.I. Packer, uh, the, the sovereignty, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And most recently, um, this book, really, really helpful last year. Some of you know that uh, my, my, my dad's wife, my stepmom, this time last year, uh, passed into glory, four weeks of suffering um, of cancer. And on the way to California, a month later, I read this book, uh, Why Do I Suffer? Suffering in the Sovereignty of God by John Currid. Really, really, really helpful. Easy, easy read. 150 pages a game. Talks about suffering and the believer, biblical purposes in suffering, and also suffering and the unbeliever. Puts you to heaven, points you and lifts your eyes to Jesus. Let me leave them there. Um, I can rec- Someone could take them off me if they want to. I've scribbled over them all. Apologies for that. But the sovereignty of God, A.W. Pink. Evangelism and the sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer. And then why does God allow suffering? Suffering and the sovereignty of God, John Curd. Friends, God is sovereign. He is in control. He has always been on his throne and working all things together for his own. Amen. Father, we confess heartily that we do not understand these truths on our own. And God, even even preaching these, I felt so afraid this week just about it and yet lord you are sufficient your word is 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 able to make us wise so for all of us god our prayer is that we would go away